Welcome back to another episode of Off the Top Podcast. This is literally the third time that we're doing this. And I'm so still excited for this. Julian, how's it going? I am stoked that things are in order and ready to take on this podcast. Exactly. So <laughs> without further ado, uh, I want to just preface this guest, a very, very special guest with this quote that I feel like he truly lives by and is almost the epitome. So without further ado, this quote by Hunter S. Thompson is, life should be not be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-maintained or well-preserved body, but rather to skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly used up, totally worn out and loudly proclaiming wow so our guest um what and who mr thompson was talking about is unequivocally jeb from wrangling venomous animals as a kid to hand feeding sharks to flying through heaven's gate through waterfalls and numerous base jumps uh you walk the walk as much as you talk the talk so without further ado uh jeb how's it going yeah, it's going great, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, this is a really exciting episode. I mean, we just kind of gave a preface of what Jeb Corliss is about right there as far as his life of being, you know, I feel like the fierce scientist in an aspect of doing so many things that people, you know, in regular day life would probably not dream of, of doing in a million years. So I think this is going to be an episode where, you know, our listeners can really like gain some really interesting perspective from somebody who's lived almost on the outside of the normal parameters of society. So I'm really excited for this one. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we're going to talk about some fun stuff. So let's get started. What do you want to know? From Flying Dagger, you you referenced two jars. You know, you start with a jar of experience and a jar of luck. And it seems that the jar of experience is empty when you start, obviously, and there's some unknown amount of luck. But what pushed you to get this, you know, pushed you into the world and your career as being an extreme sports athlete? Oh, wow. Well, that's a huge question um, with a gigantic answer, because this is something that doesn't just happen. It's not like you're, you know, a 25 year old and all of a sudden decide, oh, I'm going to go start doing dangerous stuff. You know, I'm going to go start base jumping. It just doesn't work like that. It's something that builds over time and it builds from, you know, in my case, it built from childhood. When I was a little kid, I started catching rattlesnakes. And I guess really what I should do is I should go back to like kind of where it all comes from. You know, it kind of comes from this place where I used to, my parents were art dealers and they would buy artifacts from all over the world and then bring them back to the United States to sell. And I was on a trip in New Delhi, India when I was around five, yeah, I think I was five years old. And my parents took me and my sisters to go see snake charmers. I, at that point, I'd had no experience with snakes. I knew nothing about snakes. I, I don't even think I really had even seen a snake at that point. When I got there, they had this massive basket. And I remember them opening up the basket and a gargantuan king cobra came out of the basket. And I remember being absolutely horrified. Like I was terrified of this creature. And it was a fascinating sensation because... I didn't understand why this animal made me feel this way. I didn't understand why I was so petrified by something that I had never seen or experienced. It, it was a very unique feeling. And as a child, I wanted to understand why. Like, why is this creature making me feel this way? I mean, obviously, once you learn about them, you realize they've got venom and you realize that they can hurt you. But I had no understanding of that. 
before. So why would this thing scare me when I didn't even know anything about it? You know, after that trip, I got back. I, we lived in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I got home and I became obsessed with catching snakes. It just became something that, you know, the, the feeling was something I was really trying to wrap my head around. And what was funny is it didn't matter what kind of snake it was, even when they weren't venomous, they still scared me and I needed to understand why. And so I just spent time, you know, learning about snakes, finding out which ones were dangerous, which ones weren't. And I started with catching the ones that weren't dangerous. Those were the ones that I focused on because I knew they couldn't hurt me, but they still gave me the same sensation. I was still scared of them. So I would catch them and, and, and try to like work through the feelings and emotions that they were giving me. And now you gotta remember I was a six year old, so I was little, but I always kind of thought in these terms, I thought it was funny you said a scientist of fear and that's basically what it was. And I, and I was my own Guinea pig. Like I, I wanted to find out, you know, the sensations and as I worked through the fear of the, the smaller garden snakes and the bull snakes and the other types of little snakes that were around my area, I slowly started understanding the fear and being able to control it. I never really got rid of it, but I definitely was able to kind of understand it. And through understanding it, I was able to control it. And then I was able to work my way up to bigger snakes. And then I finally, I mean, I was still six years old, but I then worked my way up to catching rattlesnakes. And the rattlesnakes became my most prized, like, I don't know, I guess quarry, you call it, <laughs> the one that I like to capture the most because they were the most dangerous and the feeling was so intense. And, and not just that, their behavior, like they're, they're very um, aggressive and they, they strike very fast and they're, they're a much more complicated animal to deal with. And when, they, when you make a mistake, it's a much more serious mistake. So they became something I became very interested in. And I, I started, you know, I caught rattlesnakes from around six years old to 12. And then that became kind of the catalyst. That was the beginning of me trying to kind of understand this sensation of fear and trying to figure out how to work my way through it so that I would be able to, you know, get myself to the other side and actually accomplish, you know, certain tasks that, you know, usually hold people back with fear. Such a journey as a six-year-old even to like, you know, just being a kid and the fact of, you know, being so introspective and understanding or actively seeking out uh, the reasons why you feel the way you do. I think a lot of that comes from traveling. Like people don't seem to realize how traveling really does broaden a person's perspective and it really does open up a person's mind, even when they're children. Even as a child traveling the world, you see so many different cultures. You see so many different things. I mean, by the time I got back from that trip, I had traveled like basically most of my, from the beginning of five years old to the end of five years old. Like one year I was through Nepal, India, Pakistan, and, and I had spent a lot of time with Buddhist monks. I'd spent a lot. Of, I mean, I went to, I went up the Ganges rivers and I watched them burn human bodies. I mean, by the time I came back from that place, I knew what it smelled like for a human body to burn, you know? So if you really think about it, and I also had my first near death experience during that trip. When I was in New Delhi, India, I got amoebic dysentery and, you know, I got very, very ill. I lost a third of my body weight. My parents took me to a doctor who informed them that I was going to die. They're like, he's going to die. There's nothing we can do. My parents didn't like that answer. So they took me to another doctor. And the other doctor was, was like, well, 
you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend this is very serious. You know, this kills adults. So with children, it's, it's, you know, his chances are very small to make it. Luckily for me, you know, he's like, but we're going to try. We'll do the best we can. And my body fought it. But I suffered from hallucinations. I was my I became incredibly dehydrated. We could keep nothing in me. I remember it. like it was a very profound experience. I remember that was when I first realized that I was going to die, like that there was death was coming. And at, you know, five years old going on six, I learned that life isn't permanent. I learned that it can be taken away from you at any moment. Um, no matter what you're doing, just walking around, you can be killed. So that in and of itself created a thought process and it created a way of thinking that was already very different. Very few children, you know, at that age understand death, you know, understand that you're going to die. Um, but I already knew, I, I'd already experienced it. I'd already gone through the hallucinations. I'd already gone through this, the system of my body shutting down and already gone through what it feels like to die. So not to mention hanging out with Buddhist monks in Kathmandu, you know, at the monkey temple and listening to them sing their songs and chants and learn about, and a lot of they have all these like gold Buddhas. I mean, these are all things that, you know, as a child, when you come back from that, you are different, you know? And I think that's part of the reason why my brain when I started doing my process with snakes and fear, I approached it the way I did is because I had already had quite an education from just traveling the world, especially wrapped around the concept of death, especially wrapped around the concept of fear. I think that's a, a very valid point is if you look at a child raised in, we'll take America, for example, it's about preserving life. And, you know, you're taught to fear death, but you brought it to a very good point. You know, when you break cultural norms and you're going around, you get this sense of life and this understanding of how things can really affect you. And I think you you painted the picture very well that it, it piqued that curiosity to see, you know, something that I wouldn't say is encouraged over there, but you un became this found perspective that people in, you know, kids your age in America aren't thinking about, oh, death. They're like, oh, no, I don't. I don't want to think about death. He said, well, this death thing is something serious and it, there's this sense of feeling and of life that I need to figure out more to have that when I'm coming back to the stateside. And I know you kind of touch on a little bit later in your life, kind of going through a, a dark time and not feeling that, that sense that you had found at one point. I want to get into what you said a little earlier, though, like this concept of in our culture, death is a bad word. Dying is a bad word. People don't want to talk about it. People are terrified of it. People want to avoid it at all costs. Like, that's it. At all costs. Whatever you have to do to not die, that's what you do. Period. They, they see death as a very negative thing. And funerals are always very dark and always very depressing. It's an interesting way that human beings process death, you know, and, and different people process it in different ways. But what you will see is different cultures process it differently as well. Some people see death as a very natural part of life that all living things go through. It's like a very kind of like Buddhist mentality. And I mean, I'm not religious at all. I have zero anything. But what I do love is I've seen lots of different religions from around the planet. And one of the ones that I find to be very beautiful is Buddhism. It's, a, it's not my religion, but I find it to be a beautiful religion. And I, I, I see their concepts of death to be some of the most profound and some of the closest to what I, what I feel is reality which is, you know, death is just a, a natural process that happens to every living thing. This is what I think a lot of people try to 
They try to avoid the idea. They try to escape from the idea. They try to pretend it doesn't exist. They try to make up all these really elaborate fairy tales to make themselves feel better about what death is. But if a person just allows themselves to understand it, I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. It is what it is, right? So once you can accept it for what it is, it really does free you. It's this freeing sensation that then allows you to go out and live your life. And, and for me, once I understood that all death is, is a very simple process, you know, it's just you being released from your consciousness and being, and you melt right back into the universe from where you came. And that concept to me is so simple, so straightforward, and so much more magnificent than any made up fairy tale people like to tell themselves. That concept is science. That concept is real. That concept is, is obvious. And for me, once you accept that concept, you can then go on with the process of actually living your life. You can actually go out in the world and start turning your dreams into realities because you come to this realization that that's all that matters. Everything else is just a bunch of made up bullshit that we're all just kind of putting ourselves through. But at the end of the day, it's really a very simple thing. All life is is a bunch of experiences you have until you die, right? So my goal is to try to make those experiences as amazing as I possibly can. Now, you know, people are, people are like, well, why would you risk your life? You're like, dude, you have to understand, I, I, I'm a risk evaluator. That's what I do for a living. My, my job is not to do dangerous things. My job is to evaluate risk and pull off projects and ideas and do things that people think are impossible. It's to push boundaries, to push the limits of what can be done. And, you know, they're, they're so like, well, yeah, but you could be hurt. I'm like, yeah, you can be hurt doing anything. The reason why I'm capable of really doing what I do is because of two stories. These two stories are important. And I think it's an important thing for people to understand, right? Because people think they have control over when they die. They think if they don't take risks and if they're really careful, that they're somehow going to like, okay, I have a predetermined, I'm going to get 80 years if I'm really careful. And the answer to that question is no, you're not. That's not guaranteed. You're not guaranteed 80 years, no matter how careful you are, right? My little sister, 16 years old, her best friend, same class, also 16 years old. Her best friend got her driver's license. She had her driver's license for one week. She was driving herself to school. Like everything, we all drive every day. Don't think about it. It's not even a process. You don't even, you're not worried that this is going to be your last day on earth, right? She's in her car driving to school. Someone on the other lane falls asleep, hits her head on. She's killed instantly. Never did a dangerous thing in her life. 16-year-old little girl going to school. Killed. Bang. Done. Second one. And this one's the one that should terrify everyone. Because this is something that you have zero control over, and it happens at random. They're called brain aneurysms. And if you look around at what causes a brain aneurysm, guess what? Doesn't care how old you are. Doesn't care how active you are. Doesn't care what you do. All of a sudden, I have a buddy. He was we're going in for a job interview, blah, blah, blah. The person who did the job interview, he ended up deciding to do another job. You know, okay, we're done. Six months later, he decides, oh, I'm going to call back. You know, I'm actually kind of interested in that job now. So he calls back to talk to this person. The person's secretary answers. And he says, yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in speaking to whoever their name was. And she's like, oh, I'm really sorry, but she no longer works here. And he's like, oh, really? She was the head of the division. Why isn't she there anymore? And she's like, well... You know, it kind of happened suddenly. It was only a few days ago. Well, actually, I think it was like a few weeks. It was like a few weeks ago. But she came to work one day 
and passed out. And we went over, and when we went over to see, we just thought she had passed out. She was dead. She, her heart stopped. She had no pulse. She was, that's it. And because she was so young, she was only in her early thirties. She didn't drink and smoke super healthy. And they, they did an autopsy on her because they just couldn't understand like, why someone just dropped dead. And sure enough, brain aneurysm turned her off like a switch. So the, the idea that, you know, I'm going to avoid all risk and all danger because I want to try to live longer is that's just not reality. It isn't. And really, at the end of the day, it also doesn't mean go do the most dangerous stuff on Earth because, yeah, I'm going to die anyway. So who cares? No, it's not that either. You know, there's a balance somewhere in the middle where you have dreams, you, you find out who you are, you find out what your passions are. You know, you spend some time really analyzing yourself, really figuring out what makes you happy, right? Then you you don't allow fear to stand between you and whatever that passion is, whatever that thing that makes you happy is. You know, no one can tell you what it is. Each individual person has to figure it out for themselves. And then once you figure it out, then it's about having the courage, the courage to stand up and do whatever that passion is, to do whatever that dream is, to do whatever you found your purpose to be. That's where the courage comes from. That's where you have to be able to work through the fear. That's where you can't worry about, oh, well, maybe this is a little bit risky. Maybe this might kill me. You have to really genuinely sit there and go, hey, it's worth it because this is the whole point of life. This is why we exist is for this experience, you know? Yeah, something that you said that was really impactful is basically people are bargaining their way of living to basically expect this certain amount of life. And one thing that I always think about and that you hit on like basically right on is that as this inexorable relationship and bond to death in the aspect of that is one thing that we are 100% guaranteed. And also that means that that's a reference point in our life of what we want to do and what we, you know, what we think we should do or act certain ways. And that basically, I mean, the guaranteed like life amount of anybody, you know, is the same amount for me, is the same amount for you, is the same amount for Julian. It's like we all have a lifetime. And regardless of how many years that is or how many measurable moments that is, it's the same unit. And it's up to us to basically decide what we want to do. And with the perspective of knowing that we will die one day. Well, I think there's two concepts. There's two little sayings that I really love. And one is it's quality over quantity. You know, you want a life of quality, not a life of quantity. I mean, if you only had 20 years just living your dreams and doing everything you loved, that's way superior to 90 years of being trapped in a cell. You know, it just is. I mean, I, I'm sorry. If you're just trapped in a little box for 90 years, you wouldn't want that, you know? So that's one concept. And then the other kind of concept that I really love, which is this. My time in this world is limited, but what I can do with that time is not, you know? And that's what's really amazing. And when a person can wrap their head around those two kind of ideas, it really helps. Again, it's this freeing concept. These things free you from these chains and these boxes that kind of cage you in and keep you from living an extraordinary life. I think the most important person, the most important thing for any person to do is to find their purpose. You know, I think that is super important. You have to come up with a reason to be here, you know, a reason to drink water and breathe air and eat food and exist in the first place, right? And that's, it sounds easy, but it's not. It's challenging to find your purpose. It's challenging to find your reason. But when, and, and again, no one can help you do it. It really is something you have to look inside yourself and really go out in the world and try different things 
until you finally find that one thing that just lights you on fire, that one thing that you're willing to sacrifice everything for, including your life. Because once you find something you're willing to sacrifice your life for, then all of a sudden you've actually found the reason to live in the first place. Like that's the whole point of living is to find something you're willing to sacrifice yourself for. And, and this is the thing you have to understand. I'm not saying that everyone has to go out there and jump off cliffs or dive with sharks or, or become a Marine and go into battle. I mean, it's not about that for some people. It's art. They love painting. For some people, they love singing. For some people, they have children and their children become their whole purpose in life and they're willing to sacrifice and die for their kids. There's literally a billion different things. <laughs> and that's what makes this world so amazing is you don't have to just go with what I do. You, and, and I would not suggest you go with what I do. Go with what you do. Figure you out. Do what makes you happy. Do what makes you special. And then go out there and again, have the courage to do it. Because I'm going to tell you what, I think a lot of people have a good idea of who they are. I think a lot of people actually know what they want. I think a lot of people, if you really put your thumb on them and say, okay, what would make you happy? They would be able to give you an answer. Not everybody, but there are people who would be able to give you an answer. And then, but you're like, so why aren't you doing that? Like, why aren't you doing that? And they're just like, well, and then they'll come up with all these excuses. And you're just like, dude, you have to have the courage to chase it. Maybe you'll have to sleep on some park benches. Maybe you're going to have to be uncomfortable for a little while. Maybe you're going to have to struggle. And hey, maybe, just maybe you'll put all your effort into it and you still might not make it. But guess what? You should still have the courage to try. You should try. And there's people who I think don't try. Because they kind of think like, let's just say they, they say, I want to be a writer, right? And, and they, you know, they love reading like Hunter S. Thompson and whoever. They just love writing and reading. And they always think in the back of their head, if they were to write a book, that it would be this epic novel. But every time they get started on writing, they're writing, they're like, oh, this isn't good enough. This isn't good enough. So they trash it. This isn't good enough. So they trash it. So basically what they do is they live in this life of like, if I were to put time in, I would be successful. But by never trying, they will never prove to themselves that they couldn't be. That process, I think a lot of people do that with their lives. But what happens is they don't realize that by not even trying is failing. Like you've, you've already failed before you even started because you never started. And, and that Gretzky quote of, you know, uh, 100% of the shots you don't go for, don't go in. The idea is, is, you know, the master, like the person who's become the absolute ninja at what they do, they have failed more times than the beginner has even tried. Masters fail. You fail a lot. I know in my life, I've made lots of mistakes. I've been hurt lots of times. I've been broken and shattered and smashed into the friggin' pavement. I keep getting up, wiping myself off, you know, healing up and then doing it again. I don't give up. I don't surrender. I don't stop. And I think that that really is what makes a person, you know, great in whatever it is that they're doing. Is, a, is this concept of putting the time in, putting the hours in. When things get rough and things get hard, you don't just give up on it, you know? And I think we're, we unfortunately have a culture of, of throwing broken things away instead of fixing them, giving up when things get difficult, trying to avoid fear and trying to avoid pain and trying to avoid uncomfort. When they don't seem to realize that all of those things are what make you strong. All of those things are what push you forward. 
pain makes you strong. I've learned more from my pain than I've ever learned from my happiness, period, straight out. I've learned more from my fear than I've ever learned from my comfort, period. I have become a strong person because I have beaten myself into the ground. The strongest metal is the one that's been hammered the hardest. Base jumping, shark diving, whatever. Pick whatever you want. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you you, you do something in your life that, that tempers you, something that strengthens you. And I, I'm in a constant state of trying to strengthen my mind. That's what this is all about. I use base jumping as like a... Think of it as like metal that's just molten and hot and just burning. And base jumping is that the anvil that you're smashing me against to form me into what I want to be. You know, I'm trying to form into a, a very powerful sword or battle axe that's going to go out in the world and do some damage. And, and I needed base jumping as this anvil to shape me into what I needed to become. That, like those snakes, that was whatever, they're snakes. It was the fear that I needed to confront. And luckily I had something so simple as a snake to be able to, you know, channel that sensation, understand that sensation and use it to make myself a stronger person and to become the kind of human being I needed to be. You asked me earlier about depression, you know, and that I, at 16, I went through a period where I was kind of sad. That was, you know, a lot of teenagers go through whatever teenage angst go through depression go through hormonal changes you know whatever i had a darkness in me and i think a lot of teenagers do and luckily for me i found a positive outlet well somewhat positive outlet to channel channel all that darkness and all that rage and all that teenage angst into instead of turning to drugs and trying to just numb myself out joining gangs just to be accepted by someone whatever i mean teenagers go through all kinds of things that you know are somewhat you know negative to their futures and their existence and luckily i feel like i found a way to you know work through my demons work through the darkness work through it without having to you know numb out with drugs you painted a, a great picture there. It's something that I've always tried to center my life around is that there's three things you really control in life, right? Your thoughts, your words, and your actions. And a lot of people you, you kind of hinted at get tied to other things. And that's not a bad thing by any case. Some people get tied to their spouse or their, to their job, but really want to pursue something else. And in that time where those who do break off and pursue that, even if they fail hundreds of times, as Jeb mentioned, that experience all the way up there, you would have had no and no other intention. Um, there's one moment that I remember Jeb essentially saying he was on a helicopter ready to go through Heaven's Gate. And, you know, in his mind, he's saying, you know, I could probably make it down in one piece in this helicopter. But at the same time, it's saying, you know, if I don't do this, I'm going to regret it 30 years down the line. And a lot of people live that every single day is that you have an opportunity there and it's all up to you to if you want to pursue and take it and live life. And that's what fear is. Fear is the unknown. You don't know what's going to happen. But until you dive deep into it, you'll have no clue on how your life could change or, you know, the other excitements that may come out of it. Well, and, you know, a lot of people lack perspective. You know, for instance, let's just say you take a kid and you give them everything, right? You give them all whatever toy they want. You give them they, – they have this life of just absolute what you would think is perfection, Right. 
And you notice that these kids usually end up very unhappy adults because they never had a perspective of what it meant to struggle. They never had a perspective of what it was like to be rock bottom or what it's what how bad it can really be. They never saw suffering. They never experienced suffering. So now all of a sudden it takes very small things to make them suffer. All of a sudden it's like, oh my God, my latte is not, you know, is cold. It's like, oh Jesus Christ, really? You know, at the end they don't they don't have any perspective to understand when something really is bad or something really is good. They've had this kind of like life of just a straight line of just the bar is just super high and it's a straight line all the way. So any little bump becomes a massive thing to them and you see them and then they, again, I, I don't like to generalize. I'll just talk about specific individual people who I've known throughout my life. I've known a few very wealthy people who were wealthy their entire life all the way. And I'm not saying this is all wealthy people. It's not, it's definitely not. I'm just speaking of a specific group that I have been around, right? And I've seen these people who never struggled, never had anything rough. They never had any real anything. And then all of a sudden, you know, a girlfriend breaks up with them or, or whatever. It's like, it's, it's you pick something, some s- simple thing that happens to everyone all the time. And then they're just destroyed. They turn to drugs and they can't handle anything and everything's, a, and they get become alcoholics. And, they, and you're just like watching them going, dude, what is what happened? Why are you so upset? What's wrong? And the problem is that they just they never saw what it was to suffer. They never understood what it was to feel pain, to really genuinely see what it's like to live in, in the ghettos of India, you know, and what it's like to to have nothing and have no shoes and live on the dirt. That, that but when you start really experiencing people who have genuine hardship. And then you can actually see them with smiles on their faces and they're super happy, just stoked on the existence that they've got because guess what? They're alive. That's the kind of stuff that really wakes you up. That's the kind of stuff that really changes you. And I know for myself, you know, when I was 16, I didn't have any reason to be upset. I didn't have any reason to want to kill myself. There was like looking back on that 16 year old who was suicidal. I'm like, dude, there was literally, but again, I had no perspectives. You know, yeah, I'd been around the world and yeah, I'd seen things, but still, for some reason, through my mind, I wasn't able to conceptualize those things properly. Maybe I was a little too young to truly understand. I don't know, but I was not processing properly, you know? And it only took like me getting really badly injured. Like I had an accident in South Africa where I hit a waterfall. I broke my back in three places, all of my ribs. I was eaten alive by animals for three hours while I waited for rescue. The rescue took nine hours. I spent six weeks laying on my back in a hospital, staring at a ceiling. I had to use a bedpan. I mean, dude, the, my biggest nightmare in the world is bedpans. If there's a hell, like if hell existed, it would, it would be a bedpan. I hate them with a passion. Like it's the most disgusting, horrible thing in the world. And anyone who's ever experienced a bedpan for like, weeks at a time where you're just in a bed staring at a ceiling with not unable to move and just being in excruciating agonizing pain day in and day out where you can't even sleep because the pain is literally just eating your brain once you stop feeling that pain you know and once you can stand up from bed and go to the bathroom by yourself without having to ring a little bell and have four nurses come in and wipe your ass for you once you have gone through that all of a sudden 
everything, life becomes just so much more beautiful. Like, dude, when I can wake up in the morning and go to the bathroom by myself without having someone help me, that's a beautiful day. Like, that's an amazing day. Any day I can get out of bed without feeling bolts of lightning ripping through my body, just this pain that just eats you. Any day I can wake up without pain is a beautiful day. You know, like I spent only one night in a jail cell once. And now, dude, that experience was like, dude, any day you're not in a jail cell is a beautiful day. There are like so many things that once you've experienced how bad things can really be, you know, once you watch friends get ripped in half and you see you get covered in their blood and you see how nasty shit can get, all of a sudden it makes you understand how beautiful just existing is, how beautiful just being awake is, just being alive and being able to look at a flower and feel the sun on your face and walk around without feeling pain. It, it gives you a perspective where all of a sudden everything is just so awesome as long as you're not in the shit. <laughs> as, long, <laughs> as long as you're not in the shit, suffering and in pain, everything is golden, everything is sweet. I wake up with a smile on my face every goddamn day, and, I, and, and boredom doesn't exist for me. I, I have fun no matter what I'm doing because life is great. You know, no, and don't get me wrong, I'm a human being, so I still have my ups and downs, and you know, I still have stress just like everyone else, and there's financial stuff and this, because we all have to deal with money and finances. But at the end of the day, because of what I've been through, because of what I've seen, because of the perspective that I've gained, I, I feel like I deal with all of those things much better than I ever did in the past. And I feel much more content. I feel much more full. And I, I'm in a weird place where I feel like I've done all of those dreams, all of those things. I have become the person I've wanted to be and I'm happy and I'm content. And if I were to die, I mean, I don't want to die. I want to live longer because I enjoy this experience and I want to try to experience it for as long as I can. But if I do die, if I'm, you know, come up with a project, something goes wrong and I get hit by a meteorite in the process, that's okay. It's okay. You know, there's nothing wrong. I, I, I'm okay with death. Death does not, I don't see it as a negative thing in, anymore, you know, and, and when my friends die, I don't feel sad for them. I've come to a place now where I've started to see death as a very beautiful thing. And I see it as a release, you know, from this life. And, and I hate to say this, but it's true. Life is a challenge. Life is hard. Life is a struggle. You and me and every one of us fight and kill every single day to survive. And we're going to do it for as long as we possibly can. Every day you eat a meal, you've killed things in order to eat that meal. That's just it. Life is this just constant battle and struggle to survive, period. And there's something beautiful that at the end of this long struggle of a life, you get to finally be released. You get to be released from that consciousness and you get to just be at peace is the best way to say it. You get to just be released and you don't have to struggle anymore. And there's something beautiful about seeing a person's story, seeing their story from birth to death and everything in between. And we all get to have that story, you know? And, you know, I don't really see death as a tragedy. I don't see it as a negative thing at all. I just see it as a process that we all have to go through. 
And I noticed that a lot of people, when someone dies and they get really upset and you see them just, it, they start ripping themselves apart over it. And you're just like, dude, you're not helping them. You're not helping yourself. And you're literally making this about you. And once you realize that really all of this pain, all of this suffering is just you making it about yourself and how much you're going to miss them, then you can actually let go of it and realize that they're okay. Then they will exist for as long as you remember them. They will always be within you. Remember the good times. Think about the good times. And that should bring you happiness, not sadness. And that's really where I've come to with death is I've gotten to this place where I see death and it makes me smile. because Not because death is a good thing, but because death is a natural thing. And I see the positives. I remember the good about this person. I remember times that this person made me smile, made me laugh, made me happy. And then that, instead of this dark feeling, I get this very bright feeling because I think of them and just how amazing they were as human beings and just think about their story. There is so much to break down in what you just said, Jeb, and the fact of the perspective of people and their relationship with death. And you even mentioned something that uh, I definitely wanted to touch on and kind of create a game out of it, so to speak, and get your perspective on two major kind of instances in your sporting career that kind of got the best of you, maybe, in the sense of you mentioned the, the Howick Falls accident in South Africa, where you uh, kind of got sucked into that waterfall. And then I wanted to bring up another instance of the wingsuit accident on Table Mountain in Cape Town. Oh, yeah. And yeah, exactly. So uh, if you could, could you give kind of uh, the listeners kind of like a really brief rundown, if you can, of each instance? I was jumping off a 300-foot waterfall in the KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa, about an hour and a half, two hours outside of Durban. I jumped it. I made a mistake. I got an off-heading opening, which flew me into the waterfall. I hit the cliff face behind the waterfall, broke my back in three places, all my ribs, left foot, right knee, a chipped teeth, you know, got a huge gash in my ass that was decided to flayed open. And when I hit the water from an unknown altitude, my, my canopy collapsed when I hit the waterfall. So I impacted at a very high rate of speed. And I actually hit so hard that I just, I couldn't believe that a living thing could hit something that hard and not die. I mean, it was just, I, it was so shocking and so unbelievably powerful that I, I it's, there's just aren't words. There's just nothing I could say to describe the true horror the pain was beyond comprehension. It, it was a hurricane inside my head that just uh, took away all thought, took away all breath, took away everything. And then I laid there for hours while I was being eaten by animals, waiting for people to come rescue me. And, you know, it was very um, disturbing. <laughs> and I would, quite honest. No way. Yeah, it was disturbing. And I, I will suggest if you can avoid that happening to you, avoid it at all costs. Like, I definitely don't <laughs> let that happen to you because it's, it's genuinely unpleasant. And it was a career-ending injury. That's something that usually when somebody goes through something that horrific and that painful and that, you know, life-shattering, they usually stop doing whatever that was. Like, there's very few people would experience something of such a violent nature and continue doing it, you know? And that was the first thing the doctor said, like, as they brought me into the ICU, they were telling me about the damage and everything that was wrong with me and, you know, how long it was going to take to recover. And the doctor basically said, you know, there's a good chance this is going to 
be a lifelong thing. Like your back is never going to be the same. And you're going to, if you ever live to be 40, you're going to really regret it. <laughs> like it's going to hurt you really bad in the future. The degenerating condition, compression fractures of the spine. He's like, hey, I bet you're never going to do that again. And I just looked at the face and I'm just like, you know what, man? I'm going to tell you what, there's only two things in this world that would prevent me from base jumping. And he's like, what's that? And I'm like, quadriplegia or death. Anything short of that, and I'm going to continue jumping. And he just looked at me with this like kind of grin, and he's like, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> at that point in my life, it was every, it was my life. It's, it, to, to, the only reason, you know, after that accident that I went through rehab and started doing yoga and started working out the way I worked out was because I wanted to get better so I could base jump again. That's all that mattered to me. I didn't, there was nothing else for me. That was, I, I became so hyper-focused on, on that activity and doing that to the thought of giving up was just not even in the cards. Like I didn't care what happened to me. I was going to continue, you know, and that mentality and that thought process, I think is what helped, you know, propel me to, you know, become good at it, you know, and, and to be able to earn a living from it. And that's what I've kind of come to realize as well. You know, I was very fortunate because I had a lot of opportunities that came along and I had, financial support that helped make this happen, you know, beyond just and that, you know, so I can't discount all of the the lucky things that happened in my life to help get me where I am. And I also can't discount that accident, you know, the accident, what I said, it was a career ending injury, but that actually was where my career began. You know, if I had given up, yes, that would have been the end of my career, that would have been a career ending injury. But the fact that I didn't give up, it actually became a catalyst to my entire future. I ended up, you know, at that point in life and, you know, and in base jumping, you couldn't license footage. So if a TV show came to you and wanted to use base jumping footage, most base jumpers just gave it to them for free so they could be seen. You know, I, I don't even know why they do it, but apparently they would just give the footage out so people could see them. And for me, when I came back from that trip, you know, I wanted to to make a living from it. You know, I didn't want to to have to work a desk job. I, I felt like, you know, I was a graphic artist at the time and I thought I felt like it was a soul sucking career that just made me want to kill myself. So I, I was like, I need to do something else. I would love to be able to earn a living doing what I really like, which is jumping. And as it so happens, the footage of my first accident became my way of earning a living for like the next decade. It, that footage was so powerful and so extreme and the story was so messed up and no one else had it. There was no one else who had anything like it. No footage like it, no story like it, nothing like it. So when TV programs would contact me, I would charge them and they would pay it. <laughs> That's how it and, and I was able to license that footage for over a decade and for a period of time, I was licensing it maybe once a month. You know, and, and it was, and that was enough to support me. And then what it did is it gave me the money I needed to go do other projects, like jumping off the Eiffel Tower and jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. And it also gave me contacts with producers from all over the world. So all of a sudden, I started learning the business. I started learning how everything worked. I started figuring out how licensing you know, operated. And then I started meeting all of these people who then would call me for different projects, different shows, different things. And literally my entire career came from bouncing off of a cliff. That's where it started. And, and it's weird to see it that way. Something that was seemed so negative and seemed so bad 
actually ended up being the catalyst for me to live my dream, which is don't even know what to say about it, but it was an amazing thing. And, you know, people ask, oh, if you could take, take that back, like if you go back in time, no way. But the way that turned out, that was one of the most important things that's ever happened to me. Now, would I suggest going and doing it again? No. <laughs> that's how we have no. These are one of those things where it's an accident and it has to be an accident, you know, because guess what? Out of, out of every one person who survives something like that, you know, a hundred others die. So it's, it's not, yeah, I, I got lucky. I got very, very lucky. That's all I can say. And I got lucky on many, many, many things. So that was that accident. I, I, and it, again, like I said, it also shifted my perspective. I think that it saved my life in the long run because I became just a safer person. I think the thing I really gleaned from this one is that a lot of people kind of try to box in or categorize extreme sports athletes as, um, you know, something as a hobby, but you kind of bring it out as, you know, understanding that, you know, some people like this crash is awful. I would have stopped, you know, I would have been done. And you finding that perspective on life to understand, you know, that situation and find the passion that was behind it to force you through a painful rehab and to understand you know, I, there's a business here as well that I love what I do and I would love to continue to do it. And it gets you all these connections and how the thing I, I want to know, Jeb, is what is one of the, the typical stereotypes or misinformation people believe about extreme sports athletes? Because you're putting your body on your line. You have to be in top shape. You have to be calculated. You have to know what you're doing. You're not just jumping out of a plane or a helicopter or off a cliff. It's something you have to have skill in, but I'd like to hear from you what some of those misconceptions are. Um, I would have to say the most frustrating misconception I get is people equating um, what we do to drug use. I, I'd say that's probably the single most annoying thing for me is when people call us adrenaline junkies or, you know, they try to say, oh, well, it's just like taking heroin. You're just going for a feeling. And, and I find that incredibly annoying. And Maybe for some jumpers or for some extreme athletes, that's true. Maybe there are some people who do it for a feeling, you know, do it because of the sensation that it gives them. But me personally, I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't use any drugs of any kind. I don't take aspirin, Tylenol. When I broke my back, I'd use no pain medication. So for me, I find that kind of when people try to make that connection, um, very insulting because a lot of people are like, oh, well, you're just addicted to it. That's why you do it. They have, And I think that people in their own heads have to somehow make you out to be a crazy person or uh, a junkie of some kind in order to make themselves feel better with the fact that they're not willing to face their own fears. You know, they can't understand the fact that, hey, I'm a human being and I'm scared of shit just like you are. It's not like it doesn't scare me. This scares the crap out of me. I mean, I've been so scared that I'm shaking uncontrollably and I, and I feel like I'm going to vomit. I mean, this stuff is so terrifying. And, and, and that's what I think they can't really wrap their head around. They want to try to think that you're somehow wired in a different way. And, and you know, <laughs> I, I'm not. <laughs> I'm horrified of the stuff that I do. And I've spent my entire life learning how to deal with and control that fear. And I feel like anyone can do it. I don't feel like I'm doing anything that you couldn't do. Now, I may have a desire that you don't have, like I have a desire to face my fear in a way that maybe you don't, but that's, that doesn't make me better or worse. It just makes me a little bit different. But I, I feel like we, when it comes to the sensation of fear, we're very similar, but this is, 
where I get annoyed with the adrenaline addict concept because I don't like adrenaline anymore. Like I will say this when I was younger, maybe I did like the feeling maybe when I was going through that process of trying to find out who I was and what I was made of and, you know, trying to kind of mold myself and learn how to deal with fear. Maybe I did kind of enjoy it in my early twenties, but I can say right now, I absolutely hate the sensation of adrenaline. I do not like the way it makes me feel. It makes me feel nauseous. I, if I could do what I do without getting those feelings, I would. Now, what I do is has nothing to do with adrenaline or making me happy or feelings of any kind. What I do is not about feeling. What I do is about trying to accomplish an, a difficult task that people think are impossible. I've developed a certain set of skills that give me the ability to do things that others aren't willing to do or cannot do. You know, And for me, the process now is about... I kind of look at it like an, I'm not going to say I'm an astronaut. I'm not an astronaut. Astronauts are way cooler than me, but I, I like the process of how astronauts work. So think about an astronaut when they were done the process of trying to go to the moon, right? Now, did they get adrenaline from it? Of course they did. It was a scary thing to do. No question. They got adrenaline. Did they go to the moon to get adrenaline? No. Call an astronaut an adrenaline junkie. No. What they are is they're a person who has a, a, a very massive, very big task at hand. They're trying to accomplish something amazing. And what they're doing is they're trying to figure out the safest way to accomplish that goal. And I see what I do in a very similar way. My goal is not to make things more dangerous. My goal is not to make things more complicated. I'm looking, I have a goal, I have a task, I have something that I want to make happen. And I'm trying to find the best, safest way to accomplish that task. And if I could do it in a way where I got zero adrenaline and it was just a task that was accomplished, that would make me happier. <laughs> it would make me happier if the task didn't involve adrenaline or that horrible, gut-wrenching feeling where you feel like you're going to die. I hate that sensation can't stand that sensation and every single time I do a project where I get that sensation I always swear it's going to be the last time I'm always like I'm never doing this again I don't know why I'm doing this this is horrible oh god and then you finish it you accomplish the task and that sensation there is a feeling at the end of everything because it does feel really fulfilling to accomplish a task that people thought were impossible there is something very amazing about pushing the human being to evolve into something new, to push them forward. That is something that's super special to me. And to do something that other people thought couldn't be done is amazing. I think that's become more of the reason I do it. And I know that a lot of other um, extreme athletes, they're, they're kind of similar. And it's become almost an art form. Imagine a painter, right? They get a canvas, they get paint, beautiful landscape. And I think that for myself, a lot of what I'm doing now is, a, is creating an art that can help other people vicariously experience what we're experiencing. You know, and, and for me, that's an art. I think there's something beautiful about being able to show someone something that they never thought was possible. And one of my greatest compliments, the thing that I love the most is when people tell me, you know, you see comments on videos and, you know, YouTube, wherever you put videos and you see people say, well, that's CGI. That's not possible. You know, that's fake. And for some reason, that makes me smile so big. Every single time someone thinks something that I've done can't be done, 
even after watching it, like they see the footage of it happening and they're like, oh, that's obvious CGI. No one that's fake. I'm like, oh, man, that is. <laughs> thank you. That's the greatest compliment you could give me. I mean, there's no greater compliment than telling me that something that I did can't be done. I think that's a great way to put things is that certain point that what you're going for and you're doing is what people just don't understand. I think a lot of people think of this loose term of their friends going to skydive and looking for that feeling. But for you, it's, you know, it gives you perspective. You're calculating things. You're doing things that people are are in awe of and you're pushing yourself as a person and pushing through those boundaries to, you know, complete the task. And I, I think the best way that I, what I've gleaned from this and what you're saying is that wingsuits and skydiving and base jumping isn't for everyone, but everyone has that, that something that they can push themselves a little bit further. And you alluded it to earlier, like, yeah, you can live consistently and do what you do. Um, but if you aren't pushing yourself, you're failing. And that's where you, you know, in your career, you're continuing to push the boundaries, continuing to push the body to see what you're getting out of it and continue to accomplish things that, you know, you've mentioned in the past that if you don't, you know, you could stop today if you wanted to. But is it something that if you stop today, you know, in 10 years down the line, you're going to say, why did I stop? I could have done that. I could have continued to do that. Or if I stop today, am I going to be happy? And am I going to be able to move on from what I was doing? You know, I want to I want to touch on something you said, which is if you're not pushing, you're failing. And and I have to be honest with you. I, I, I don't see failure that way. I, I actually, honestly, I don't think a person has to push themselves to, to be happy in their lives. It's individual. Some people do. Like there's some people who have to push themselves. Some people don't, you know, and I feel that concept of failure is very interesting because I don't really believe you can fail at anything. There is no failure there. I, I think there's giving up. I think you can give up on things. But until you give up, you haven't failed. Right. You're in the process of trying to make something happen. And of course, you're going to hit barriers. There's always going to be barriers placed between you and whatever your goal is, you know, and it's your job to have picked something. And I think this is what's important. Pick something that is important to you, right? Something that you, you feel like it's worth sacrificing for. And once you've picked that thing, once it, and it, it again, anything, whatever it is, once you've chosen that goal, then you can never let anything sway you from it. You know, whatever barrier is placed between you and that goal, your job, your life, your purpose is to figure out how to work through that barrier. Do you have to climb over it? Do you have to wrap around it? Do you have to burn through it? You know, whatever you need to do to break through that barrier to get to your goal is what you do. And if you never lose sight on that goal, and if you just keep going for that goal, meaning, yeah, you hit the barrier, bang, ah, oh, I fail. And yeah, if you stop at that moment, you failed. That's it. You're right. You chose it. You made the decision to stop trying. Whenever I hear somebody say they fail at something, I'm always like, well, why aren't you still trying? I mean, you're here. We're having a conversation. I mean, if you're still... if. What made you give up? I mean, yes, you gave up on it. And, and hey, maybe sometimes giving up is the right thing to do. Maybe it wasn't important enough to you, you know? But at the end of the day, you didn't fail at it. You gave up on it. Now, if you continue to keep trying, it might take you a year. It might take you five years. It might take you 10 years. But if you keep bashing away, you keep trying, eventually you will get there. You will. You know, and I think the reason why I have succeeded where others have failed is because I just haven't 
given up. I don't give up. Now, a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, if you die on your way there, you failed. Wrong. That's inaccurate. No, you died in the process of trying to turn a dream into reality. That's not failure. You know, I hope everyone gets an opportunity to die that way. If you die in the process of turning some big, grandiose dream of yours into and, and making it real, good for you, man. You know, that's what you're supposed to do. Absolutely. Something that I remember hearing you say when you were flying through Heaven's Gate is, you know, it's just it's just a process of achieving success in whatever you do. You know, it's just varying degrees of you being closer to the goal that you're reaching and how you're going to accomplish it in the way of failure, which I'm putting quotations around, is just basically the next evolution of, you know, you succeeding. So, you know, At each failure is you learning how not to do something, right? Like, let me let me pick a simple one. When I was 16, I wanted to dive with great white sharks without cages. At the time, it wasn't something people were doing. Um, everyone thought that if you got out of a cage with a great white shark, they were going to eat you straight out. No one thought you could do it safely, right? And I remember telling my stepdad, you know, oh, I'm going to dive with great white sharks without a cage. And he just looked at me and he's just like, Jeb, why would you even say something like that? He's like, you're never going to do that. I mean, so why even say it? You know, you, you, and I'm like, dude, I'm doing it. I was 16 when I decided I was going to do it. I contacted everyone, tried every way. Everyone said, no, 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 never, never. Death, you're going to die. You're going to die. And not until I was like 30, I was 34 when I finally had, you know, I'd gotten a name. I'd become somewhat known for being an insane person doing insane things. And I had a buddy who I went on some big shark diving expeditions with. And finally, he called me and said, hey, you know, we're, we're doing a great white shark dive off Isla Guadalupe. You know, do you want to come? And I responded with, I'll only come if I can get out of the cage. And he's like, Jeb, he's like, they don't let you out of the cage. I'm like, then I'm not coming. If you want me there, you know, then you're going to have to let me get out of the cage. And he's just like, oh, okay. He's like, let me, let me, let me call the captain. You know, let's see what I can do. A few days later, he calls me back. He's like, all right, Jeb you know, because it's you and because we all know you're insane. He's like, but he's all, there's two things you're going to have to do. One is you're going to have to obviously font sign a waiver, you know, <laughs> that, that, that releases them from all liability. He's all, but beyond that, he's all, you're going to have to write a suicide letter. You need to write a letter that says, I know that by getting out of the cage with a great white shark, I'm going to be eaten. I know this and I'm totally okay with this. And then you have to have your parents sign it and you have to get it notarized because they aren't worried about you suing them because you're going to be dead. They're worried about your family suing them. So your family needs to know that this is 100% your choice, your decision, and we need to know that they know because we want to sign that letter and it needs to be notarized. And I'm like, absolutely no problem. So I wrote a letter basically saying that I knew that getting out of a cage of great white shark meant I was going to get eaten, I was going to die. And I'm like, I handed it to my mom and I'm like, you need to sign this right now. Jeff, are you out of your goddamn mind? She's like, <laughs> dude, you don't have a choice in this matter. You're signing this and I'm getting out of a cage of great white sharks. It's happening. So a great simple way to put this is I never gave up. Now, any of those probably, no exaggeration, 50 times I tried to dive the great white sharks without cages and was denied, right? Any one of those times I could have given up. And guess what? There you go. I made the decision to fail, right? 
But I just kept bashing away at it, bashing away at it. Finally, the opportunity presented itself. I wouldn't take no for an answer. They wanted me there because guess what? Luckily, I'd become kind of known. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when, you, when you get kind of a name, people start wanting you to be there for things. So all of a sudden, I was able to leverage that in order to do what I wanted to do. And guess what? I went there. I was out of the cage with over four. I, I had up to four great white sharks at a time over eight hours outside of a cage with great whites. I pet 16-foot great white sharks without cages. So I did exactly what I wanted to do times 10. That's the thing with this stuff. I wanted to dive with crocodiles. you know. And everyone told me, you're going to die. You're going to die. It's impossible. Blah, 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 blah. Well, guess what I did two years ago? I got in the water with a crocodile and I filmed it for like four hours. So at the end of the day, you can give up on stuff. That's, you know, people call, you know, I failed, I failed, I failed. You didn't fail at anything. You gave up. Now, obviously, if your goal is to become president or something silly, well, then do that. <laughs> that's not based on you. That's based on other people judging you. And, and yeah, that might be a little more complicated. And, and maybe that's not the right goal for you. I think that's what a lot of people also don't realize. They set unrealistic goals in their lives as well. You have to be realistic about who you are, what you want to be, what you want to do. You know, if I, if I want to be, you know, a leprechaun, well, guess what? That's not going to happen. So at least be real in your goal of what you want to be and what you want to do and then find realistic ways to approach that goal to train yourself for that goal prepare yourself for that goal and to do that goal i like kind of bring it down to there's a, a happy medium and I, I think it's still you know going to pet great wreck sharks or jumping in with crocodiles some people see it as insane but you know you you see it as life and that's the journey right there, um, going down your path and finding what makes you happy and makes you have that experience. Finding your purpose and then having the courage to go out there and live that purpose, you know? And, and again, that purpose can be anything, you know? Yeah, my purpose is different from yours. It doesn't make it better or worse. It just makes it mine. You need to find what yours is. That's just awesome. I think it's inspiring. I think it's Something that a lot of people, you know, we've touched on a few times. It's all about perspective and in finding yourself. And yeah, Jeb mentioned it earlier. It's difficult. You know, it takes a few times to find out what drives you. And once you find it, you know, take full advantage of it and do what makes you happy. Honestly, that's the key to this is there's no time limit on how long it takes a person to find themselves. You know, some people haven't found themselves at 50. It, it, it takes you time. But what you need to do is actually put the time in and effort to figure it out. Most people don't ask themselves those important questions. They don't ask themselves what will make me happy. They make bad decisions early in life that trap them in lives that they don't want to live. You know, and I think that's a, an important thing, too, is try to make sure that when you're doing certain things, it is something you want to do. It is something for you. You're not being convinced to do things by other people because other people have ideas of what you should be. Other people have ideas of what they want you to be. Other people want to use you and abuse you and make you into whatever their drone, you know, and you see that in teenagers a lot. Like you, you always see somebody smoking and you're like, well, why do you smoke? It's like, oh, you know, I was young and it's all my friends smoked. So, you know, kind of peer, you know, that peer pressure concept of you're doing something to try to fit in with other people. I think the sooner you can learn that fitting in with other people is fucking pointless. Like, don't ever try to fit in with other people. You get it. You become who you are and then let them fit in with you. Because at the end of the day, your personality, the person you are, you should use that as a filter. 
You should use it as a filter to filter the people who don't belong in your life out of your life. And that's what most people don't think in those terms. They want people to like them, right? I want people to like me. I want to be accepted. No, that's not what you want. What you want is you want to be yourself, find yourself, be who you are. And the people who belong in your life will stay there. The people who don't belong in your life will leave. Thank you. There's the door. Walk out it. There's over 7.6 billion people on this planet. I can't be friends with them all. So at the end of the day, your friends, the people who, you know, your people, they need to accept you for who you are. Why would you want friends who can't accept you for the person that you are, right? Be yourself. Find yourself. Be who you are. And the people who belong there will stay there. The people who don't belong there will leave. And that is use your personality as a filter to make sure only the right people are in your life. And that is something I think a lot of people get confused about. And that's why peer pressure attacks them and they do a bunch of silly shit they shouldn't be doing. That's how they get hooked on heroin, start smoking crack, start using drugs that destroy their bodies and destroy their minds and destroy their lives. It's because they're trying to fit in with other people. And at the end of the day, what person who's offering you crack is a person you want in your life. That's a thing. Someone offers me something I'm not interested in and I say no, and then they keep pushing. It's like, dude, I only need to say no to you once, Yeah. right? Don't keep asking because I'm not going to respond in a nice way. So that's, I think, an important thing. I think this concept of, of, of being your own person and not worrying about what all the other little people think about you cares what people think their thoughts are irrelevant it doesn't matter you want to know whose thoughts matter yours what do you think about yourself what do you think about the decisions you make do you like the person that you are and if you can't answer yes to those questions you need to make some changes in your life in the mirror and say do i like this person do i like the decisions that this person is making and when they and when you can actually look at them and go yes that decision was a decision I made because I, that was me. That was a decision I made. That was, I'm proud of that decision. Then there's a couple things that happen. You never have to lie again, ever. There are no lies when you're doing everything that you 100% believe in, right? Why would you care what other people know if you're okay with it? Then second, when someone has a problem with something you did, when somebody says, oh, what you did is blah, 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 whatever. Who gives a shit what they have to say? You can look at them and say, well, that sounds like a personal problem. That sounds like it affects you in some way. And that's something you're going to have to deal with. But I'm okay with the decision that I made. I'm happy with the decision I made. I thought through that decision and I'm okay with it. So I'm fine. I'm unaffected by your problems. You go deal with your own problems. I'm dealing with mine. And then once you can do that, oh, you become a god in your own world. And guess what? At the end of the day, if you can't see yourself in that way, if you can't understand that you have a right to be happy, how can you make anyone else happy? With the internet now and, and you know, when you post things, there's always negative people. There's always trolling. There's always someone saying some stupid shit. And you just have to, like, be there, understand it, look at it and go, okay, I, I find it funny. And I think that's something that I feel like everybody can take 
away from is that, you know, it's very important to have this sense of self and do the right decisions on what will make you happy and what will kind of grow you into the person you want to become. Remember, that doesn't mean be a dick and like take advantage of other people and use other human beings. That's where a lot of people get confused with that idea of it. Oh, this makes, you know, doesn't mean be selfish. You know, it means understand that other people's opinions of you aren't important. <laughs> That's not what matters, what they think of you. But what does matter, you still are nice to them. You're still good to them. You still help them. You still love them. You still come from a place where you, all of these things hopefully are who you are. Hopefully. You know, and don't get me wrong. If who you are is a psychopathic murderer, you know, and your whole purpose is killing people, well, it's not going to work out for you very well. <laughs> you're you're going to suffer consequences for being that kind of person. And there are those kinds of people, you know, but they end up in prison and they end up dealing with the consequences for their actions. But each individual person, hopefully you are a good person. Hopefully you do have a moral compass. Hopefully you do want to do good for other human beings and make other people happy around you. And at the end of the day, them being happy will make you happy. There is a symbiotic relationship that we all have with each other. And if someone's being positive to you, like, for instance, if somebody is saying something nice to me, then it's like, oh, thank you very much. You know, I appreciate that. But whether they say something nice or negative, that shouldn't have an impact on the things that you did or do. You know, if somebody says something negative to me, I'm like, oh, that sounds like a personal problem. I hope you work through that. Either way, you still should have made the decision that was the right decision. This, I'm going to go back a little bit on this concept of, I don't know if morality is the right word for it. I don't even like using that word, but of doing, doing good things, like right? doing the right things for you. My mom, when I was little, she said something to me that was interesting. And it was, you have no rules. You can do anything you want. She's all, but there's only one thing about this. You can't lie to me about it. Basically, you need to use this concept of lying as a gauge of what's right and wrong. If you feel like you need to lie about something, it's probably something you shouldn't be doing, right? If you feel like you can be honest with everyone about it, well, then that's a good way of deciding if it is something you should be doing. And it's been a very powerful concept in my life because I don't lie to people. If I feel like I'm going to do something that I feel like I can't be honest about, I can't tell other people about, well, that's a great indicator of something I shouldn't be doing. You know, so it's this idea of how to decide what's right and wrong for you. Because if you do something and you feel like, oh, man, I'm not going to be able to tell anyone about that. Well, then why are you doing it? What, what was the purpose of you doing that then? You know, and that's really this concept. And I love it. And that's that's how I make determinations. So if I make the determination that I can be honest about something and then I do that something and, you know, and if someone has something against it, somebody says something negative about it, it's like, OK, that's your problem. You know, deal with it. You know, if it's if it's someone who says something nice about it, I'm like, oh, thank you very much. It's super nice. But neither one of those two responses is going to have an impact on the decision that I've made. It's unfathomable to me to to go through kind of what we've painted so far. Right. You brought in this great perspective on what it was like going and traveling and seeing all of these different perspectives. And it kind of comes full circle to what you just you just painted there. I'm not a huge fan of the term morality as well. At the end of the day, I think the thing that I, I've really gotten drove home is I think it's really about understanding. Like Jeb said, you don't have to be an asshole to find your happiness or to find what's working for you. But there are ways to understand 
as Jeb said, if someone's selling you crack and forcing you to buy crack, probably not the right person to be around. And that person could be a great person. You don't have to be an asshole to them. You don't have to fight your way trying to be the very best uh, and pushing other people down or taking advantage to get the places. But to understand your purpose, it's just about finding that that happy medium of getting to where you want to be. You don't have to be mean to people just because even if they're being mean to you, the concept is you can be nice to people even when they're mean to you. Like I, I have people mean to me on a daily basis. Whenever you have a public persona, anytime you're on the internet, you know, you have people who are mean to you. That's just part of it. I mean, it's just for some reason, people, I think they, they like to vent, you know, and I, I think they vent when they don't have to worry about the consequences of venting. Like they can say whatever they want and no one can like really respond to that. And it's kind of like, you know, that is an interesting thing. People just nasty, mean things to you all the time. And then you're just like, I'm actually nicer to people who are mean to me, honestly, because I realize, you know, this person, you know, obviously they've got something going on in their lives and they're trying to work through something and, you know, I'm okay with it. I, and I, and again, their, their opinion, especially if it's not accurate, it doesn't bother me. You're and I feel that people are entitled to their opinion. If someone doesn't like what I do, they're entitled to that opinion. I don't have to care about it because I don't. <laughs> but but they're more than welcome to have their opinion, invent their opinion, and say their opinion, and I'll listen to their opinion. I'm like, oh, okay, that's how you see it. Well, I, I hope you work through that some someday because <laughs> it sounds like it upsets you. And I, I hope I hope that at some point in your life you won't get so upset over such small insignificant things that have literally nothing to do with you <laughs> that literally has zero impact on your life at all, and you seem very worked up about it. But okay. <laughs> And then I laugh and giggle and I go off. I mean, I know you guys probably go through that. I guarantee anytime you post things, you'll have positive saying and then you'll have people say negative things. And at the end of the day, it's it's actually fun to watch. And this is one thing I've learned about the Internet. You know, every now and then on my Facebook page, I'll have almost a 10 million person reach in a week. Right. And when you've got that kind of reach, you you literally reach a, a massive cross section of human beings and psychology and how people think. And what I've noticed is that no matter what you say, I don't care what you say. You can say the most benign, simple, obvious thing in the world, and someone will argue it. Like, period. You could, I, I did it just as, as an experiment. I just wrote down, Mother Teresa was a nice person. That's it. Super simple. Nothing controversial, right? And sure enough, like 95% of people were like, oh, yeah, she was a pretty nice person. You know, she did a lot of nice things for starving children, you know? And then all of a sudden, there's 5% who just went ballistic on how she was the most evil, wretched human being who ever lived on the face of Earth. And you're just like, wow, okay, if Mother Teresa is going to get hate like that, I have no chance, right? There's I don't care who you are. None of us are Mother Teresa. None of them, right? And if she's getting hated on that hard, well then, dude, you're going to just have to expect a certain amount of hate. <laughs> just get ready. There's going to be a certain amount of people that are going to hate on you no matter what you do. You can spend, you can be a 12-year-old little girl who decides to dedicate the rest of your life to help feed starving children, and there will be people who still hate you. So, Jeb, you gave us so many, like, you know, gems and things to take from. Is 
Is there a place where, you know, our listeners could start like, you know, picking up more Jebisms, as I'd like to call them after this podcast and tell their opinion and kind of uh, follow you from this podcast? You can go to my Facebook page. That's I keep that very updated into what I'm doing, how I'm doing things. Also, my YouTube page. It's all just Jeb Corliss, and you can find everything that I'm doing. That's where I post my stuff if you want to follow it. I'm writing a book. It'll be coming out probably end of this year, early next year, um, about my life and everything I've been through. And and I it's funny because originally I thought it was going to be a book about base jumping and kind of extreme sports. But as it turns out, as I'm writing and I'm realizing that it's really about mental illness, you know, I realized that I've been a mentally ill person my entire life and I've base jumping and all these things that I do have been my attempt at dealing with my mental illness. What's amazing is that I've been able to figure out ways to cope, you know, figure out ways to deal with it. And and I was able to figure out ways without using drugs. So for me, I'm very proud of that. I'm proud of the fact that I've been able to survive and thrive um, without having to resort to numbing out my brain. That's why I realized my book isn't going to be about extreme sports. It's going to be about mental illness and how to deal with it, at least how I've Sign me up. I mean, as from our listeners have heard so far, a great, a different perspective is a great perspective. And for you to go through this journey and understand, even in the short time of this process of your, your book to go, you know, maybe there's something else here and there's a bigger picture and I want to tackle this. I want to share and help others. And, you know, maybe introspectively, it helps you learn about yourself. I think is a phenomenal and a powerful tool um, being taken advantage here. And I, I really hope our listeners are, are driving something home from something you have said, Jeb. I, I really appreciate your time. I am beyond stoked on what I've learned today. And I continue to, I'll continue to dive in here and listen. Well, I, I've had a good time talking with you guys. It's been fun. And I, you know, I hope you're your show does really well and you guys end up becoming super successful and start making billions and trillions of dollars and you take over the goddamn planet. <laughs> and once we do, you'll be the first one we think about, Jeb. Thank you so much for... I've become a good sponsor of mine when that happens. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Jeb. Thanks for listening, guys. Oh.